0: Welcome back to Steph's Business Bookshelf and this episode 40 about the book Quiet by Susan Cain. Keep listening to find out why introverts should rule the world and we shouldn't be buying into the extrovert ideal. You're listening to Steph's Business Bookshelf, doing the reading so you don't have to. Welcome back and this is episode 40, which feels very big and old and grown up for a podcast that I started slightly on a whim nearly a year ago. Like I said in a previous episode, I've got some fun things coming up in 10 or so episodes time when we get to a year old, so keep listening and keep an eye on social media about that. This is also the first episode I've recorded since getting back from Boston, where I was attending the Immunity to Change course run by Dr. Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy and their team from Minds at Work. And it was fantastic. I can't wait to tell you more. I've been sharing a little bit on LinkedIn. Uh, If we're not connected, send me a little LinkedIn request. That'd be great. Or on Instagram, all the links, obviously, to those are in the show notes. You can just hit those and we can connect. But it really was awesome. I also met some fantastic people. I stayed with someone, I was airbnb and ended up staying with someone called Elle who was just awesome and we had a great time and great conversation. She's building her own business as well and doing some really interesting study on in online entrepreneurship, so that's pretty cool. And also met a guy who's building a website, funnily enough, about books and sharing the reading lists of really famous and influential people. So that was really cool and I can't wait to share more about that once that's up and running. I also bought lots of new books because despite the dollar rate or the Australian dollar rate being absolutely horrible at the moment, books were still a little bit cheaper. So I had lots of the Amazon Prime deliveries to the Whole Foods next to the place I was staying and also bought lots of new tea from a place called David's Tea, which I hadn't experienced before, which is a Canadian tea company. Actually enjoying a slightly tepid cup of their tea here. If you happen to be based in Melbourne, Brisbane or Sydney, lucky you, first of all, But I will be bringing a little bit of the Immunity to Change content to some workshops in those cities before Christmas, probably in October for most of those or early November. So if we're not already connected and if you're interested in finding out more about how to understand your own Immunity to Change and what stops you changing or what stops those in your team from changing, let me know, I'd love to have you along to those workshops. Now into the book I'm talking about today and this was a book I actually read quite recently, it's called Quiet and it was on recommendation of quite a few people actually. And I am so glad I did it blew my mind and I really really enjoyed it and I know I say that a lot about a lot of the books that I share on here but it's true and this book really did change the way I think about some people that I know that I work with and potentially one that I do live with as well as usual before we start a little bit about the author Susan Kane is the author of bestsellers quiet power the secret strengths of introverts and quiet the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking which has been translated into 40 languages, is in its seventh year on the New York Times bestseller list and was named number one best book of the year by Fast Company magazine, which also named Kane as one of its most creative people in business. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Wall Street Journal and many other publications. Her record-smashing TED Talk has been viewed over 30 million times on TED.com and YouTube combined and was named by Bill Gates as one of his all-time favourite talks susan prefers listening to talking reading socializing and cozy chats to group settings she likes to think before she speaks softly and until a few years ago was terrified of public speaking so she's still amazed that such a giant fear is actually conquerable she lives in the hudson river valley with her husband and two sons and that was all taken from her website quietrev.com link in the show notes a little bit about the book Susan Cain's quiet the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking shows how dramatically we undervalue introverts and how much we lose in doing so. Taking the reader on a journey from Dale Carnegie's birthplace to Harvard Business School and from a Tony Robbins seminar to an evangelical megachurch, Cain charts the rise of the extrovert ideal in the 20th century and explores its far-reaching effects. She talks to Asian-American students who feel alienated from the brash back-slapping atmosphere of American schools. That was really hard to say, by the way, it took about three takes. She questions the dominant value of American business culture, where forced collaboration can stand in the way of innovation, and where leadership potential of introverts is often overlooked. And she draws on cutting-edge research in psychology and neuroscience to reveal the surprising differences between introverts and extroverts. By the way, that bit was my favorite. I'll be telling you more about that shortly. Finally, she offers invaluable advice on everything from how to better negotiate differences and introvert-extrovert relationships and empower an introverted child to when it makes sense to be a pretend extrovert. That was also taken from the quietrev.com website, link in the show notes. Other links I've included in the show notes is the link to Susan's TED Talk, which I recommend watching. It's 30 million people can't be wrong. Although I say that, but Justin Bieber's pretty popular. Anyway, side note. And you can listen to Susan's podcast, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. And the first season actually focuses on giving parents and educators the tools to empower quiet kids. Now, before I get into the three big ideas I took from the book, a couple of quick disclaimers or notes or definitions. Number one, introverts do not equal loners or hermits. Now, of course, some introverts may be loners or hermits, but they are not one of the same thing. Number two, introversion is not the same as shyness. Shyness is painful and it comes from a fear of social disapproval or humiliation. Introversion is different to that. Introversion is not painful or certainly not for the introvert anyway. Point number three is that introverts and extroverts have different levels of stimulation and that's not only to do with people. There's some really interesting work in the book or studies in the book where they talk about different stimulation points, so different or stif- different stimulants, and how introverts and extroverts may feel those to different levels. Some of those are sight, some of those are sound, some of those are smell. It can be all different things. But someone who is highly sensitive, which is a technical term used in the book quite a lot to describe introverts, are more likely to be sensitive to other stimulants, not just to do with other people. So are those things out of the way? And with your definitions now in mind on introverts versus extroverts into the big ideas big idea number one we are all wired differently and as i mentioned in the beginning this is the thing that amazed me the most the different parts of the brain actually light up differently in different situations for introverts versus extroverts for example the reward part of the brain is actually bigger in extroverts and they tend to be quite reward driven which also might correlate or does correlate with things like instant gratification and not being able to delay gratification as much. That reward part of the brain is pretty strong and is actually, like I said, actually bigger in extroverts. I can definitely identify with that as I am absolutely reward driven and also pretty extroverted. It's also interesting, as I mentioned earlier, I do live with an introvert who is almost as introverted as I'm extroverted, which is quite high. So it's interesting to see actually his reaction to different stimulants but also to reward and he's whilst he's quite goal driven he's definitely one who can put off reward till later that that delayed gratification is something he's pretty good at they did this work with babies and toddlers and teens and sort of tested them for introversion versus extroversion to see if it was a bit of a nature or a nurture thing what they found was when with babies who again don't necessarily have that the stimulant around people or social interaction because obviously they just haven't developed those those skills yet what they did was they put different babies in a room and wafted strong smells in the room had a lot of lights had big mobiles above them that were quite pretty noisy and had lots of things going on. What they found was some babies thrashed around and threw their arms and legs in the air and gurgled and made a bit of noise, in a way that babies do, and other kids or babies just laid there kind of gurgled and and weren't that bothered by the sounds and, and sights. Now what you might initially think is that the loud babies thrashing their arms around were the extroverts, they were having a good time, but what they found was this is actually a bit of a discomfort thing, and it was actually the babies who were quieter and just laying there pretty unbothered by all the noise and smells and sounds around them that were the ones who turned out to be extroverted because they weren't overstimulated by all the things going on around them. They then tested that again in toddlers and then teenagers when they can actually see the more social interactions coming out or playing out with those babies or turned into introverted or extroverted kids and teenagers. So therefore introversion and extroversion is, whilst that is one way of explaining it, High or low reactive or reactivity is probably a better description. And it's like I said, not just exclusively to do with people, but actually with new environments, with other stimulants, like I said, sights, sounds, smells. What they do find though, is that introverts are more likely to choose intellectual jobs because you're in charge. You can close the door from unexpected stimulation and enjoy the quiet or the space that you need or the environment that you need to do your best work and to succeed. So as someone who's quite extroverted and, like I said, lives with and someone who's introverted, has worked with and has many good friends who are very introverted, hello introvert friends who are listening, this really gave me a new appreciation of what is happening in the brain of my introverted friends when we're out for dinner or when we go to an event or when we're in a workshop or when we're just hanging out. All of these different things, whether it's a new environment, whether it's different stimulants, whatever it is, are actually firing different parts of the brain and producing different kind of hormones and emotions than I am experiencing. Now of course each introvert is different and each, as each extrovert is different so different things will stimulate or not stimulate introverts differently. So big idea number one is that we're all wired differently. That was my favorite part of the book. Brain is fascinating. Big idea number two is the extrovert ideal. So I found this history quite interesting. That this isn't this is actually quite a fairly new phenomenon in in terms of the the level of ideal that we put on extroverts, and it was spurred mainly by the Dale Carnegie era of personal development and public speaking and sales skills that were built around probably late mid to late nineteen twenties onwards. It was linked to the growth in the economy and corporate America, and where those kind of skills were being touted as the new the new work, the new way of work. Particularly as the the white collar industry really started to grow. Warren Sussman who's a cultural historian called this shift the move from culture of character to a culture of personality and personality interestingly enough didn't actually exist in English until about the 18th century and wasn't widely used until the 20th century. Before that it was everything was about someone's character. Now this drove a whole industry and stopped women, actually stopped women marrying men for fear that they were an introvert and wouldn't progress far and caused parents to worry about their kids and send them to counseling and force them into social interaction. And maybe some of you out there and some of my, my introverted friends I know who experienced that, who their parents were worried about them being these little hermits or these introverted kids, so tried to force them into social interaction. I'm actually watching the Bill Gates or Inside Bill's Brain documentary on Netflix at the moment, which if you haven't watched, I really recommend. And it's quite funny to see that him talking about his childhood and how he would have quite happily, and his sister's saying that he would have quite happily never come out of his room and just sit and read and learnt. But his mum actually forced very surreptitiously sometimes social encounters to make sure that he got that social growth as well as his, his intellectual growth. So leaping forward a few years or a couple of decades, and you've now got a country, and I'm talking about the US here, which is where a lot of Susan's work came from. You've got a whole country powered by antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs to try and cure introversion and this perceived disease that is people who aren't extroverted on the basis that to get ahead in work, to get promoted, to get the sale, to get a partner in life, you seem to need to be extroverted or that's certainly the, the the social status it's given but it's not all new though romans and greeks were all about the extroversion and oration was highly regarded in terms of your storytelling your ability to hold a room throw a party and we all know what the romans and the greeks got up to in their parties so whilst it doesn't necessarily change anything i found understanding the history and the quite modern history of extroversion quite enlightening in terms of the what does this actually mean this is quite a new phenomenon so it's not actually based in much and there was quite a few notes in the book about some of the inventions that have come from some of society's favorite introverts and potentially if we had forced some of them into more extroverted pursuits or ideals then we wouldn't have some of the great inventions that we have now. So there is definitely space for both. And this extrovert ideal probably doesn't need to be pushed as much. So for me, it really made me think about all the times that I have really valued someone, you know, someone I'm interviewing, someone in my team, someone I'm, I've met because of their more outgoing nature or because of their perceived, maybe real or perceived, extroversion. So it did make me check myself a little bit in terms of how much I value some of those extrovert ideals and those extrovert behaviors. So that's big idea number two, the extrovert ideal. Big idea number three, one I found particularly fascinating given the work I do in facilitating groups, why groups are like drugs. Now there was some research in the book talked about around how ideas are better when you do it alone first. And there was lots of examples in the book, particularly around open source code and how some again of more technological inventions have come from either people on their own or people who started working on their own and then bought it together later on with other people. Open plan offices, as we all know now, are just terrible for, for introverts and extroverts. They're just terrible generally and should be banned. However, they're especially bad for innovation and ideation. So all the things that they were meant to try and help and create No, terrible. (laughs) And 40 years of research is now showing that group brainstorming doesn't work and performance actually drops as a result of group size increasing. Now, for those of you either doing facilitation or group team coaching work like I do, or for those of you who are in big teams, teams of more than probably six to eight people, your output and your productivity and your ideas are probably worse as a result of the size of your group being bigger than that. And that's because of all the social norms that then come in we don't have the good ideas we don't share the good ideas because there's either a lot of noise from other people or we're scared of judgment and all of those other things that come in and mess up the dynamic of potentially good ideas now the exception to that is virtual groups who do actually perform very well because each person is alone so there is better output from virtual groups plus There's a quote in the book that groups are like mind-altering substances, which is why this big idea is why groups are like drugs, in that peer pressure to conform or give the right answer actually fires different parts of the brain. It lowers our decision-making part of the brain and increases the perception part of the brain. So it actually stops us looking at things in the way we might want to, actually changes the way we perceive a situation. As a facilitator, this definitely made me think, again, about how I set up activities where they need to come up with ideas or they need to share things. And more often than not, I do normally have some kind of individual reflection and then sharing things in a more open way. But again, if people know that they're gonna have to share in a group, then does that change things potentially? So it did make me think about how I set up different group activities or different situations, particularly when I'm working with an intact team, which often is the work I'm doing, to come up with new ideas. How can I prime that in advance so that people do something in as pre-work in previous to the activity or to to the workshop, which means they're doing that initial thinking alone. So that's big idea number three, why groups are like drugs. So to recap, the three big ideas I took from the book Quiet by Susan Cain. Number one, we are all wired differently. Number two, the extrovert ideal. And number three, why groups are like drugs. As I said, I found this book fascinating. It gave me such a better insight into the way the brain works for introverts and extroverts alike and how literally our brain fires in a different way in different situations. It's definitely something that has stuck with me when I'm having different conversations, when I'm thinking about planning workshops, when I'm thinking about different people that I work with, both clients and and potential collaborators or people I collaborate with, to get a better outcome and to harness everyone's skills and strengths. Is something I would highly encourage you to do and think about as well and to go and read the book. The case studies are really interesting and the book is very well written and I know for some people this has been actually quite life-changing and again I don't really like those, those particular words because I think they're a bit overused and a bit hyperbolic but for some people this has actually been pretty life-changing to realise that they're not broken as an introvert. They absolutely have value but they just need to find the right environment and the right people to harness that so if that's you again like I said for those of you who are bringing up children and have an introverted child or children really worth a read to find out a little bit more about how you can empower those kids to find their inner power and inner voice even in a world that won't be quiet if you have read this book if it had an impact on you I'd love to hear from you all the contact details as usual are in the show notes otherwise until next time happy reading